and welcome to another ZSL Wild Science podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, a researcher here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And today we are tackling the subject of reintroductions for conservation. So what are reintroductions? Well, in my day-to-day -day life, the only reintroductions I'm familiar with are those where I'm once again introduced to somebody I've supposedly previously met. Um, what can I say? I do have a stereotypical academic scatterbrain. In today's context, we are not talking about scatterbrains. We are, of course, talking about the process of releasing species back into environments from where they may have been previously lost. Um, since my knowledge on reintroductions, as you probably can gather, is somewhat limited, I got myself some help. Meet Helen Gath. Hi, Helen. Hello. We've met before. <laughs> We have met before on several occasions. Good reintroduction. <laughs> Helen is a PhD student here at ZSL, working on the ecoparakeet on Mauritius, a species that was near extinction in the late 1980s. A fact that, you know, I had to look up. Um, that's why Helen is here, because she's essentially going to be our fact finder for tonight. In fact, she's just handed in her PhD thesis, congratulations, which of course means that she now has plenty of spare time to talk us through the tricky subject of reintroductions. Helen, in a nutshell, what are reintroductions trying to achieve? Well, Moni, if you know me well, you know that I don't do brief. Uh, yeah, I do know that. So everybody, get a cup of tea, sit back, relax. <laughs> so a nutshell will be challenging, but reintroductions can take several approaches, but essentially they aim to return or restore a species to its former range where it no longer exists. And it might no longer exist there for several reasons, perhaps habitat loss or degradation, persecution, so illegal hunting or trade, perhaps even the introduction of an exotic species which has pushed it out and means it can no longer survive there successfully. So it might mean that the area no longer has that um, species at all. But through reintroductions and releases often, there's the hope to re-establish a self-sustaining population in that area. And there's actually quite a few different types of reintroductions. It might be, as I've just said, that the species no longer exists there. But commonly as well is that often wild populations reach incredibly small numbers. And by reintroducing extra individuals, we can augment or supplement those populations to make them larger and ensure a much more viable, safer future. The reasons and the motivations behind these introductions can be quite varied. They might be a single species focus, so we might want to see a single species restored to its land for cultural or historical reasons. It might be a flagship species. Or it might be that that individual, that individual species, is a keystone species that might have a wider impact on the whole environment. So by returning that species can support a whole ecosystem. So it's incredibly useful and very important for environmental health. With this very thorough explanation also, we can all agree, I think Helen just passed her PhD. Oh, thanks. <laughs> If it were up to me. So in your PhD and also with some of the previous work you did, you worked on small population recovery. So in your experience, where have reintroductions made most of a difference to wildlife? So Mauritius is the island where you find the Echo Parakeet, where a lot of my work has been based. And there's... One example that I'd like to give in particular, which actually isn't restoring a native species, but providing an analogue species. In Mauritius, there would have once been giant tortoises that were essentially very good browsers, grazers, and sea dispersers, and they were considered a keystone species in the Mauritian environment. They would have really helped in terms of, as I said, sea dispersal and the overall health of the local ecosystem and forests. But unfortunately, these species were driven to extinction, But through the hard work of the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation, they've taken an analogue species, so basically a replacement species that does something very similar, um, which in this case was the Seychelles tortoise, 
and they've reintroduced, or sorry, not reintroduced, but they've introduced this species onto offshore islands of Mauritius. And in doing so, it's made an enormous difference to those whole habitats. And in, by changing the whole habitats, they've improved the environment for other endemic species of Mauritius, which are also threatened. So again, it's this fantastic example of a whole ecosystem approach that's changing a whole environment. I told you Helen was going to be our fact finder. She's doing an excellent job. But we've also got other experts here to talk to in this podcast. So let's go and meet our wildlife movers. They're wildlife movers. They're not wildlife shakers, <laughs> um, because frankly, that's... What you shouldn't do. Never shake wildlife. No. Excellent. Right, our next guest is definitely no stranger to species reintroductions. In fact, Mark Stanley Price has been involved in species reintroductions since around 1982, is that correct? Um, when he was involved in the release of Arabian oryx into Oman, where they had been hunted to extinction in the wild 10 years earlier. Now, he founded the IUCN Reintroduction Specialist Group. That was in 1988 and has since been involved in the development of reintroduction and conservation planning guidelines throughout the years. So quite a busy life. Mark, what are the main changes you have seen in how we do reintroductions over the years and what has driven these changes? Well, I think part of the change has been driven by the need to, to reintroduce, but the main changes which have been absolutely spectacular have been the development of reintroduction science and, and a scientific approach to it. And uh, before I went off to uh, design and then run the first release of Arabian Oryx, somebody said to me, well, Why is he going to take you a year? You just open the gate, don't you? And I mean, it was absurd, absolutely absurd. Well, we were feeling our way, admittedly, but it was trying to do it on uh, science-based management, do it uh, recording stuff, testing ideas, seeing how we thought it would work. And But we were the first to release individuals of a species that was totally extinct in the wild using captive-bred animals. And so, in a sense, the, the zoo world was watching because this was... If it worked, it was a, a justification for a lot of their insurance populations and that argument. But since then, I mean, the, the growth in reintroductions and the improvement in quality and the systematic planning and the monitoring and then the adaptive management has been superb. I'm not saying everybody does that, but there is a huge body now of intellectual methodology, how to do it, how not to do it, what to look for, uh, the importance of monitoring for long-term All of that. So, um, according to my notes, one of your interests, and I was quite intrigued by that, is contemplating rewilding. That sounds quite tough going. Now, in many ways, rewilding seems to me as a bit of a modern take on the traditional reintroductions, which often focused on safeguarding, I suppose, originally single species. Rewilding seems to me much more have much more a broader goal of restoring natural ecosystems and processes. So, is this the future of conservation, rewilding? It, it is an interesting one because, in a sense, rewilding is about restoring processes. And reintroduction has always emphasized the need to put species back into where they used to be. And, of course, if you can do that, then you are restoring whatever ecological processes that species relates to. But they may have changed, of course, during the extinction time. Rewilding is really about restoring ecological processes and complexity. And getting those processes back is more important than how you do it. Now, from a reintroduction point of view, that has all sorts of raises all sorts of flags and issues. But at the same time, you have to be pragmatic in that the world is not what it was. Habitats are changing so fast. And my view would be that if we can restore functioning ecosystems with as many species living independently in the wild as possible, that is actually really what conservation of the future is going to be. 
hopefully a little bit a more straightforward question and less philosophical to a certain extent. What is your favorite reintroduction success story and why? Well, I mean, the Arabian Oryx, of course, in Oman was hugely challenging and satisfying to do, but, of course, it hasn't led to what we all wanted, which is the establishment of a free-ranging population because of other threats then came in. So that's the case I've been most directly involved in, but I, I get a huge kick out of reading the global perspectives on reintroductions and things like that because they're all so interesting, and it's just wonderful to see see them all taking off. And I think in terms of overall conservation effort globally, reintroductions are... They're, they're a pinprick on the surface, but they're an extremely interesting one, and they're ones that also attract huge public attention for a variety of reasons. So for that, they are actually flagships for the whole conservation movement. So hopefully there's a lot more to look forward to in the future. I think there'll be a huge amount more. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. So Helen, let me take you back to your favourite place, which surely must be Mauritius. I think we've established that by now. Of the reintroduction programs that you told us about in Mauritius, how successful have these been? So in Mauritius, reintroductions there have been quite mixed in terms of their success. This is partly divided into, I guess, short-term and long-term patterns of the different reintroductions uh, which have occurred. So some of the longer-standing ones have seen great success over time. I was mentioned earlier about the plant restoration on Round Island. And yes, initially, this took a lot of time, a lot of losses in the early years. But to think where it's come now um, is, is a huge success. Some incredibly rare plants have been restored and almost an entire island has been changed um, from a barren landscape to a real forest. And then there's different um, levels of success which have changed over time. So the pink pigeon, for example, seems to have done incredibly well for so many years. Less than a handful of birds left in the wild at one point, now almost 600 in the wild. But now it's hitting problems of going back into somewhat declines. Some of the populations, the subpopulations are remaining stable, some uh, oscillating in terms of their size. And it's really hard to understand if this is, if this is natural, um, this is due to disease or habitat, can the population grow anymore or not? So trying to decide that is, is very challenging. But that's where science can be very, very helpful in terms of understanding how these programs can move forwards. We can start to use genetics, disease, behavioural information, all which help us understand um, how to move forwards. Excellent. Very good job. So making decisions is often quite hard. I struggle with this a lot on a daily basis. Mon, for example, would you rather have a starter or a dessert <laughs> both okay, stupid well, question absolutely both this is true so clearly as you've illustrated my point very well humans aren't very good at making complex decisions so here to help us and discuss complex decisions next is sarah sarah why are we bad at making decisions in conservation well we're good at making some decisions like if i was to go out outside right now and I was crossing the street and I saw a car coming at me and I knew it didn't see me I would be really good at making a decision about getting out of the way do I go left or do I get right but conservation decisions aren't like that like we didn't evolve in a situation where we had to make complex decisions and multiple bureaucracies involved and lots of scientific uncertainty and trading off multiple objectives and so on so we're not naturally good at it. And so we have to have tools to help us do better. So what tools are there and how do we use them for reintroductions? So there's lots of tools. But what's most important is sort of an underlying philosophy 
behind those tools. And the underlying philosophy is that, one, when we have a difficult decision, what we ought to do is sort of try to decompose it and see the parts and recognize that decisions are made up of these sets of parts that are common to all decisions. All decisions have a value associated with the thing that we're trying to achieve, right? And all that, and all decisions have predictions associated with them. If I do this, the outcome will be this. Yeah. And so if we see those pieces that are common to all decisions and we break it down into those components, then, then we'll, we'll do a better job at making decisions. And then the other thing, the other kind of key part of this philosophy is that you ought to think about the values first. So as, as sort of human decision makers, we tend to be focused on, on the alternatives. Mm-hmm. So I say to you, what do you want for dinner? And you say, ah, oh, well, my alternatives are I could have a steak or I could have <laughs> yes. the veggie burger or whatever. God, you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but what if you started and you thought, well, before I think about that, I'm going to think about my objectives. I want to be full at the end. I don't want to spend too much. I want it to be healthy. And then you'd have a framework thinking about it and evaluating your alternatives. Now, with dinner, you might be able to just <laughs> handle that without a lot of complexity. <laughs> but with, with these really complex and really important decisions like reintroduction, yeah. like we need some of these things. We need to be really focused on what we're trying to achieve and not get so kind of zoomed in on the alternatives that we have. Because what we tend to do when we do that is we tend to focus on the status quo. And what we want to do is we want to open a space to be creative. Yeah. Because to solve conservation problems, we need creativity. We need new ideas and new thoughts. And it turns out if we focus on our objectives and what we're trying to achieve, it opens a space for us to be more creative. That's fantastic. Do you think you could give us an example of a complex situation that you've been involved with regarding a species reintroduction where this process has helped? Um, You make it sound so easy. I know it's not. (laughs) No, so these decisions are still hard, even if you use some kind of a structured process to help you make them and you follow this kind of philosophy that I'm talking about. So I've been involved for quite a few years now with this really cool reintroduction of this really cool species, a whooping crane, which is the rarest crane in the world. There's about wow. 600 of them. At wow. one time, there were 14 of them. That 14? Are, wow. 14 As in one, of one four. One four. I think you've yeah. just beat me on the echo parakeets there. It's uh, about yeah. 18, 20. Oh, oh okay, one. yeah. All, <laughs> cr- all hooping cranes in the world come from about 14 individuals. Wow. Tune in to our next episode of Reintroduction Top Trumps. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so we have been, I've been involved in this reintroduction that started with teaching hooping cranes to migrate with, behind ultralights. And um, we, um, we did this and we kind of figured out how a bunch of, a bunch of organizations did this in, in the U.S. and figured out how to teach hooping cranes a migratory path that had been lost it was like a lost part of migratory hooping crane culture you know and we brought it back wow. we brought this culture Incredible. back yeah it's amazing but then it turned out there was all the it wasn't that easy because these cranes grew up and they didn't breed really well mm-hmm. and so over many years I've worked with this group of people who do this and we've thought really hard about what do we do to make things better for hooping crane breeding in this population and I can't say that we've cracked it yet but we've gotten closer and I think one of the ways one of the things that's helped us get closer is by being really uh, kind of structured in our thinking what are we trying to achieve what are our alternatives for getting there 
And then we've also thought a lot about the big deal is we don't know why. We don't know why, but we've, we've tried to structure that uncertainty and mm-hmm. say, well, it could be this, or it could be this, or it could be this, and thinking hard about what the possible things are. So I suppose with these three introductions, really, the, we've already talked a lot about food. Um, the proof is in the pudding, or I suppose ultimately <laughs> uh-huh. in the population. Yeah. Um, how do we best monitor the outcomes of our decisions and assess if we made the right choices? I mean, looking at population numbers is one thing, but are there other things that we might need to evaluate as well? So I think there's a couple of reasons we monitor. One is just, yeah, to see if we've been successful, but we might also want to monitor because we might have uncertainty. We might not. We, we did the best thing given what we knew and what we didn't know, but we could do better if we knew more, so we might monitor for that reason. But in terms of monitoring, just to see whether we've been successful, I think it comes from that thing about what our objectives are. So if we're really clear about what we're trying to achieve, our monitoring should kind of come out of that pretty naturally. The only challenge is that usually what we care about with reintroductions is something long-term off in the future, which is, are they going to be around in 50 or 100 years? We can't go out and look at a population and say, are you guys going to be around in 50 or 100 years, right? So what we have to do is monitor things like the survival and and the reproduction and things like that. And then we have cool models that we can use to make projections but it goes back to what we really care about is having them around in 50 or 100 years so how do we how do we monitor whether we're getting closer Mm -hmm. yeah excellent science it's awesome (laughs) thank you very much sarah thank you thank you so helen with your work on mauritius we already talked about mauritius quite a bit there have been quite a number of species reintroductions and we already talked about some of the successful ones but are there also failures that we need to be aware of Absolutely. I mean, Mauritius has been fantastic for churning out numerous examples of um, successful reintroductions or population regrowths of many native um, animals. From reptiles, which is quite rare, to its endemic birds, we've got the pink pigeon, the echo parakeet and the kestrel. Even a huge number of endemic plants have been restored through many years of hard work and a lot of the native forest and vegetation is returning. But even these have come with their own challenges and failures For a lot of the planting of restoring Round Island and its native forest in the early years, first year survival of plants was probably about 10%, and this went on for 10 years. So you're planting probably 1,000 plants each year, and maybe only 10 of them survived each year. And certainly in terms of the cost, the labour, the time, you might be questioning how worthwhile this investment is. But owing to all this hard work, this persistence and learning through the failures, actually the forest now on Round Islands, go Google it because I can't describe what it looks like. You have to go and see the difference that it's been through because of this hard work is amazing. So yeah, there's, there's definitely failures, but we learn from these failures. And I think that's how we can improve our approaches towards restoration programs and reintroductions. Going back to your work on population recovery, have you come across any particular controversies that had to be addressed in order to make the project a success? Definitely. I think it's very hard to face a whole environmental change or reintroduction programme without hitting some kind of controversy. And one long-running challenge in Mauritius, and I would say actually globally, is that restoring one species often involves the control or even the eradication of another species, Black rats, for example, are a huge threat to native species across the world. Often they're the cause of a decline or continue to suppress populations. So 
in order for a conservation program or a reintroduction program to succeed, we need to remove those rats from the environment, which has been a huge work, for example, in New Zealand, and is certainly the case in Mauritius as well. And these eradications or removals um, or even just control systems are fine when the uh, public has very little love for the species in focus, like rats, for example. But when you start to move to other um, problems such as feral cats or even birds, it's very hard. There's a lot of pressure from the public. And it's certainly been the case recently in Mauritius with many people concerned about how exotic puzzlerines has been managed But without this control, it would actually be impossible for the reintroduced species to successfully establish themselves and make all the time and the funds worthwhile. So we have to make sure we're putting across the point of the real gains here, despite the concerns and controversies. So next we've got Martin Gaywood with us to give us a Scottish perspective. So some reintroductions have no doubt caused a lot of controversy. Martin, what would you say are the general sticking points in these situations? What are the controversies based on? Well, actually, maybe what I should first emphasise is that most conservation translocations are actually not controversial at all. You know, they've, so the controversial ones, the contentious ones, are very much the minority. And I suppose the two big ones in recent years have been sea eagle and Eurasian beaver. And in the case of beaver, well, the issue there is that they are in ecosystem engineers. That means they, they change the environment, they produce dams, they fell trees and so on which is great in terms of some of the environmental benefits they can bring, the biodiversity that they can bring, etc. But inevitably, in some situations, they also have an impact on land use. So, for example, they might uh, dam irrigation ditches, they might uh, undermine banks and so on. And then we also have seagulls where the issue there has been that there are some situations where they have taken lambs in some parts of the West Coast. Um, So crofters and farmers... Um, have concerns over that. Nevertheless, they also bring many tourists to the area as well, so there's a great economic benefit as well. So there's tensions in terms of the benefits and the costs of all this, and the idea is really to work out how we maximise the benefits and reduce the risks. So with the beaver, I suppose I know of similar situations in Germany. For example, I remember a friend of mine sent me a picture of a tree that was felled in her garden overnight. <laughs> and she yeah, was like, yeah. what would have done that? And I wow. was like, well, it probably was a beaver. She was delighted. <laughs> so she's yeah, yeah. totally on board. Um, whereas, you know, other members of my family are in an angling club. They're probably not quite okay. the fan of the beaver. Um, so what is currently the prevailing view of the beaver in Scotland? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it half and half? What, what should we do to make the beaver more popular or more loved all round? <laughs> Most people, when you ask the public, are in favour of beavers for all sorts of different reasons, the environmental benefits I just mentioned, and also because you know, they're fascinating creatures, amazing natural history. I mean, there's no other species, no other mammal species anyway, that can engineer the environment and change it so much, apart from humans. Mm. You know, they are quite incredible. But the issue is, yes, how, how do we try and make them more you know, uh, how can people live with them where there are these issues? So there's actually a lot been going on over the last few months. So we have in Scotland there's something called the Scottish Beaver Forum, and it's made up of land users, land managers, uh, conservation bodies, and so on. And the idea is we try and work out ways that we can try and deal with the management, likely future management issues, especially our eastern population on Taste side. And there, there are beavers down in the high-value prime agricultural land, Um, where there are some conflict issues. So what can we do to try and reduce those issues? And it's to do with making sure that the licensing 
system works easily and flexibly and so on. It's making sure we have the right sort of management techniques, making sure that the advice is there for farmers and so on, testing out new techniques, you know, trialling them, what works best, uh, all those sorts of things. And maybe looking forward, maybe we can look at sort of ways we can sort of try and manage repairing habitats so that, in effect, what you're trying to do is keep the land use away from the beavers so they can sort of live separately. You have a sort of almost like buffer strips mm-hmm. along waterways and so on. So there's a, there's a range of things that we need to do. It's, it's going to be an ongoing thing. It's going to be able to be adaptive. You know, we're going to have to see how it gets on. Do you think that getting stakeholders on board with this, having, as you say, landowners involved, will help reduce the controversy and get more backing on your side? Well, I mean, it's, it's essential. You have to involve the stakeholders. You know, it's, it's an essential part of it. Um, it's a way of trying to reduce the conflict. Um, you know, I don't think we're, we're expecting them to become beaver supporters. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in some places, they're, you know, they're, they're affecting their livelihoods and they just you know, would be opposed to beaver introduction. But they are there, so the question is how can we work around it how can they manage the beaver population how can we manage the population to try and reduce those, reduce mm. those, those uh, impacts thank yeah. you very much Ma- okay. thank you very much so it's time to meet our final guest who knows a thing or two about the role of zoos in reintroductions axel Möhrenschlager is the director of conservation and science at calgary zoological society and is the chair of the reintroduction specialist group axel we already talked a lot about the science behind reintroductions and the scientific evidence that goes into making decisions for what to reintroduce. But surely it's much more complicated than that. I suppose some things we quite like to reintroduce, whereas with some things we maybe don't value things as highly. That's right. We use science in some ways to help achieve something that we want. And we can be from different perspectives. What is it that society wants? What is it that an organization wants? What is it that a country wants? You know, all those things might differ. And so some people might say, you know, it's it's just terrible if uh, giant pandas go extinct. I mean, we would be very sad about that or we would find that unacceptable. And they might not say the same about Galapagos rats, but actually, you know, some people might say, well, that's of equal value. And so we need to understand what is it that people want to achieve is it true that they find extinction unacceptable or not is there any tolerance for failing in these things or not how do we use science to come up with best information to help us make the choices that we have the power to make so surely with lots of species getting pushed closer and closer to extinction there are many species that will rely on reintroductions in the future so can you give us any numbers? What are we kind of facing? What's what's the task ahead? Yeah, it is a huge challenge, and I see any challenge as an opportunity. What it is is that we're just starting to get our, our mind around, first of all, what has actually happened. How many species have actually been translocated for conservation? When you start to put the math together and people have different opinions, you think, gosh, it's probably happened on over 2,000, over 5,000, over 10,000 species already. And at the same time, if we look at the rate of change, we know that these things are increasing in frequency at an exponential rate. So what that means is we are heading to a world where we will move more species to help them, to help ecosystems, and in some cases also to help people where there's benefit associated with that. 
So I suppose here we're based at ZSL London Zoo. Mm-hmm. So we're talking reintroductions. So maybe at some point we need to touch on what is the role of zoos in this? Mm-hmm. Because I suppose this is where zoos really come into their own in terms of providing stock for reintroductions. Yeah, I think zoos have um, a tremendous role to play when it comes to conservation translocations in many different ways. One of the obvious ways might be if you actually manage animals in a way that they can breed and be suitable for release, then zoos have something incredible to contribute to the right situations. Aside from that, actually, a lot of very skilled people work in zoos uh, that care about animals, you know. So that's veterinarians, it's it's uh, zookeepers, it's scientists. And those scientists needn't or don't actually just work in zoos. They actually inevitably also work in the wild. There's no doubt that the the role of zoos is changing. It's becoming more conservation-focused in general. And it needs to become increasingly aligned to meet the demand, basically, of species that need help. Because more species need help. We know the science of conservation translocations has grown up. We know that there are capabilities that we have, and those need to be upscaled to help more species in more places more of the time. So, Axel, final question for you. Mm. What is your favorite reintroduction success story and why? All right, I'm going to pick reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone National Park in the United States. And the reason that I picked that is because one was trying to restore an ecological function that was lost, basically, in this, in this wild system the top predator was gone. And the reason that I like it is because you start to understand the ramifications that a reintroduction can have for an ecosystem. So I'm going to tell you that the way to restore aspen trees is to bring wolves into a park, right? Does that make sense? No, makes no sense at all. The reason why that is is because by bringing wolves into the system, elk starting to be nervous. In fact, they would be about 50% more vigilant, you know, looking over their shoulder, looking for, for wolves if they had a calf. And even if they didn't, they would act more nervously now. And they actually start to shift their movements around in a way where they would no longer hang out in areas which were very risky because of wolves. Those particular areas are actually ones where certain plants were being regenerated. So because the elk weren't there eating the little saplings and such, the trees were recovering. So one brings wolves into the system. Coyotes are actively killed and pursued by wolves. Um, The coyote numbers drop by over half. Because the coyotes are gone, red foxes increase because red coyotes hate red foxes. And so as they're pushed down, the red foxes do better. The uh, ungulates are starting to shift in number. The plants are starting to regenerate in different places. And at the same time, overlaid on this, you have a very complex social component where people that love wolves love the fact that they're back in a park and doing all these marvelous things. And people that are sitting on the edge of the park, for instance, with cows such as the ranchers, are not thrilled because the wolves will come potentially and kill their cows. So one needed to engage beforehand and throughout to come up with ways of appeasing or, or dealing with the social component. So one of the things that was done is that there were actually compensation programs put into place for ranchers so that wolf predation wouldn't hurt you know, their own livelihood. 
So you start to see in a, in a hurry that you're trying to do something good and it's very complicated. It has ramifications beyond just wolves. In fact, beyond the ecosystem to people as well. And if you address all the different components correctly, you can have some desired outcomes. And I think that's very powerful and it shows the power that reintroductions and conservation translocations in general can have. That's a very good hopeful story, I think. Really and nice to finish our podcast on, thank you very much, Axel. Wow, Helen, we've learned a lot about reintroductions today. You, of course, already knew much of this beforehand. But for my benefit, shall we have a quick recap? Oh, that's a great idea. So today, I've learned that I can't decide between starter and dessert. It's a tough one. It's true. I've learned that translocations and reintroductions can be from tiny little animals right up to the heavy involvement of teaching birds how to migrate. How do you even begin? That just boggles my mind. I'm going to look that one on it. Yeah, I very much like the fact that it's not all about charisma and charismatic species. Which, as an ornithologist, is good because I always thought it was always about the birds. I think it's also seen that reintroductions are not just about one species, but the ability to actually change a whole ecosystem, which is really cool as well. So it's really big arguments and reasons why we should follow this up. And thanks to all the wildlife movers for their immense work bringing back species from the brink and re-establishing ecosystem functioning. Absolutely. And on that very grand note, it's goodbye from us. Thank you. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Bye.